Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and uh, man, uh, what truth in that song. Uh, I think our lives would be a lot simpler if we would just build our lives upon him and his love for us instead of so many of the other things we try to build our lives upon. Uh, Career, relationships, finances, uh, all these things the world tells us that should be our foundation. Uh, We know from experience and from the word that, man, when we put our hope and trust and build our life on Christ, we'll never be disappointed. We're not always going to get what we want, but praise God, we'll always get what God wants for us. And so we need to be thanking the Lord for that. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, I'm really excited to look at a passage of Scripture that uh, is familiar to many of us, if not most of us. But I want to step back in looking at this passage, and I want to take a step back, and I want to see the big picture, and I want to kind of see what we see happening in this text and how it can actually impact us today. And I had a a pastor friend of mine text me this morning, and he just said a text that simply said, I'm just praying for you guys. I'm praying for the body of Christ and our community, uh, that the church will continue to reach people in a a kind of a post-COVID world or a post-COVID timeline. And, And to me, I think about that, and I think, man, what a blessing it is that we get to take a message of hope, a message of truth to those that don't have that. Uh, So many people in the last year and a half have been completely shaken and rocked by what happened around them and and in their homes and in their communities and in their jobs and in their own bodies with their own health and the fears that were lying there. And we get to take a message of something that transcends all of that. We get to take a message of something so much greater than some political solution or some financial solution or some temporary band-aid. We have a message of an eternal Christ who will save all who cry out to him and ask for forgiveness. And that hope that we have in Christ is so much greater and sure. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. So we're going to go sure than any other thing we can grab onto. And so I know that so many of us have family members or friends or maybe people in your community that you know were completely just wrecked by the last year or so. And I want to encourage you this morning, as I believe Christ was encouraging his disciples, I would love for us to be encouraged by the same words that we could see that while this life seems like it's just overwhelming at times, there's something greater that when we leave this world, man, the joys and the fullness of Christ that we'll experience is beyond comprehension. And so I want to kind of look at a passage in Matthew chapter 7. Again, maybe you've really studied this in depth. Maybe you've really gone deep into this, this idea of the transfiguration or the the transfiguration of the mounts is what we call it. But when you think about this passage, I want to dive in a little bit into this passage and see what God would have for us. Before I do that, I want to kind of take a bigger picture of Christ's earthly ministry. And so I thought I'd be kind of cutting edge and introduce a whiteboard. Isn't that trendy? Isn't that awesome? All right. Yes, you should applaud. I had to carry that out of that room over there. That was a lot of work for me on a Sunday morning. I got here. I got I to gotta carry this thing, put up an easel. Like, I mean, they don't, they don't pay me enough for this stuff, guys. But the ministry of Christ. And I wanted to kind of give you something that, that actually just recently, um, R.C. Sproul, who's gone on to be with the Lord, he made a comment about this. And I thought it was so simple, a summary, but so profound as well. And so he was summarizing the ministry of Christ. Now, when we say the ministry of Christ, we know that the ministry of Christ still continues to today. Amen. Uh, how is Christ ministering to us right now as he is in heaven and we're on earth? What is Christ doing for us to minister to us? He's praying for us, right? 
He's on the right hand of the throne of the Father, and he's, the Bible says, interceding for us. By the way, I love what Jim Cimbala says. The greatest thing you can do for someone else is pray for them. The greatest thing you can do for someone else that's going through something is to say, man, I don't know how to fix this. <laughs> I can't fix this. I don't have the way to fix this. But I can talk to the one that can intervene and help in this situation. And so I'm going to pray for you that God would work in this situation. You're interceding for them. You're going to your Savior for them on their behalf. You're asking God to do something for them. And I love that Symbola points out that is the greatest blessing that we can be to someone else is to step in and pray for them. I know we feel like, and maybe you've heard it said, the least you can do is pray for someone. Oh, that is far from truth. The most you can do for someone is pray for them. Yes, giving financially is great. Serving them, we talked about that last week. Man, to serve someone is such a great blessing, an example of Christ-likeness. But when we pray for someone, we're being Christ-like in that sense as well. Because not only did he pray for us in John 17, when he prayed to the Father for those that would believe through the disciples, that's you and I, but he also is praying for us right now. Like, like as you're sitting in that chair right now and you got whatever going on in your life, and I don't know what's on everyone's heart and mind. I don't know what's going on in your moment right now today. But as you're sitting in that chair right now and you have whatever going on going on and you feel hopeless, you feel like no one knows, you feel like no one has a solution, Christ is actually right now interceding for you to the Father. And he's actually working. And if you're a believer and you know Christ, he's working right now to prepare you for what he's going to do to take care of that situation and whatever brings him glory and honor. It's amazing how big our God is. And I've said it before, but God is working right now to orchestrate the answers of prayer you haven't even prayed yet. That's how big our God is. But when you look at the ministry of Christ, we know that it extends beyond just his earthly ministry, but that's what we're talking about this morning, the earthly ministry of Christ. So from the time of his incarnation at his birth, all the way to his ascension. And R.C. Sproul points out greatly that there's two words that can really summarize his entire earthly ministry. And so I'm going to write, hopefully big enough for most of you to see. If you can't see, just be like, wow, that's amazing. I can't read it, but it looks really cool up there. It's awesome. So the first word is humiliation. So humiliation is the first word we use to summarize the earthly ministry of Christ. And what do we mean by humiliation? Well, you could argue his birth was pretty humble, was it not? Was he born to some palace and some wealthy family? How does the Bible say he was born? To a young couple. And where was he born? In a stable. More, I mean, our understanding of a stable, right? Where the animals, because there was no room at the inn for the savior of the world. So his birth was humble. You could say his life, did he live a humble life? Did he experience humiliation in his earthly life? Exactly. I mean, he lived a humble life to the point when he begins his ministry, people are like, isn't this just Joseph's kid? Like, isn't this just Mary and Joseph's kid? Like, what's the big deal about him? I mean, he's a good kid. He never seems to do anything wrong. By the way, it'd be horrible to be the brothers and sisters of Christ. Right? I mean, think about that. You come home, you know, James, Jesus never made spitballs in Bible class. I don't know if they had Bible class back then. I'm just making this up. But Hebrew class, there you go. They had Hebrew class probably. Could you imagine being in class with Jesus? Like, like you're sitting there trying to be good and you look over and he's just like literally perfect. And you're like, I got no shot. 
Some of you, you were so competitive in class, you wanted to be the best kid in the class. Just out of curiosity, anybody want to be the best student? You were the, that kid, anybody? You can raise your hand. One, one hand? Lion in church, some of y'all, lion. How many of you wanted to be the best kid but knew you had no shot at ever being the best kid? Raise your hand. There you go, that's probably a little more true, okay? Sandra told me all the time that she had a class where they would write on the board, like, which this is kind of, this is kind of messed up. Um, they would write on the board a student's name and then like the grade percentage they got on the most recent test. And they would do like the top, whatever, five or so many, I think she said. And there was a kid in her class, this one class that would consistently at the beginning of the school year, get like a couple points higher than her. So say he was like, you know, 90 nine point whatever. And she was like 98.9. So it was like either less than a point or a couple points higher. She said, that was like the greatest motivation. She said, I don't care what I gotta do. I'm going to get over, I'm going to get over that kid. I'm going to be now you think, Oh, Sandra, she's so innocent. <laughs> Play a board game with Sandra. That part of her comes out. She's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Are you bankrupt now? I'll take that. Thanks. Okay. So we see the humiliation in the birth of Christ. We see the humiliation in life of Christ. And we obviously see it in his death. Right? And the death of Christ. I mean, you talk about a humble death. He died the death that he didn't deserve, and he died it for you and me. He died a humble death, a humiliating death, where people spit on him and mocked him and beat him and struck him in the face and then called out, if you say you're the son of God, you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? I mean, he was humbled in every aspect of his birth life, and death. But we don't summarize the ministry of Christ in just humiliation. We also ex- uh, talk about the ministry of Christ with exaltation. With exaltation. And how do we see the exaltation of Christ? Well, we see it, first of all, in his resurrection. We see the resurrection of Christ actually exalts the name of Christ. We also see in the ascension. In the ascension of Christ, we see the glory of God being put on display. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If you missed it, you can go on our app or website and you can pull that up. We talked in depth about the ascension of Christ. And, and by the way, we talk about the birth of Christ at Christmas. We talk about Good Friday. We talk about Easter Sunday with the resurrection. We talk about all these things. But the ascension of Christ really doesn't get a lot of attention. And we unpacked that a few weeks ago about how much of a disservice that is to the word of God and the power we see demonstrated in the ascension of Christ. And so if you missed that, check that out. But also, how is Christ exalted when he received, when he got home? Right? When he got home. What happened when he got home? Man, he's been given a name which is above at the name of Christ in the future glory that will be revealed. Every knee will and every tongue will confess. See, we see the humiliation of Christ in his birth, life, and death, but we see the exaltation of Christ as well. We see it in our understanding from the resurrection and the ascension, and we read about it when he received the glory when he returned home and the glory he will receive moving forward. And I love this. I think this is a great summary of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ. And we know a lot about these things. But something that's amazing is every now and then in the humiliation, in the life of Christ, there was this moment where there was a break of an intrusion of glory. And so we see every now and then an intrusion of glory. And that's what we're talking about this morning. An intrusion of glory. Matthew chapter 17, look at verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. And after six days, Jesus talked with Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up unto a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, or Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they lift up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we desire to just to take from this time in your word, not just something that will help us and bless us, We don't want just knowledge just to fill our minds with. Lord, we pray that what we receive from you is wisdom from your word, that we would know things of this moment, that we would understand it in a grander context of your word and the the picture of the redemptive history that we see unfolding, but that it wouldn't just stay with us and bless us, but it would go out from us and encourage others. Father, we live in a world today that it can be frustrating and discouraging to be a follower of Christ. We see so many things happening around us, Lord, and in our culture today and in the world's climate. It's, it's difficult for many to live as followers of Christ. Lord, we know that our culture, once upon a time, held even loosely, Lord, as a, as a culture to some biblical truths, to some common moral ground that we could exchange with unbelievers and know that while, yes, they don't know Christ, it's still an understanding of these rights and wrongs. But Lord, in the last so many years, even that loose holding of those moral norms, if you want to say it that way, Lord, have begun to slip away. And now the, some of the thoughts and the ideas and the main views of Scripture have become kind of antagonistic to our culture. And people are rejecting these things. And so, Lord, it's difficult sometimes to live these principles and values, to live for you in a world that seems to not want anything to do with you. But I pray, Lord, that as we go through these things, as we live in this world, I pray that we would not resort to discouragement, living in fear. I pray that we wouldn't resort to finger pointing. Well, it's just them. If they would just fix it, they just would figure it out, we'd be fine. Lord, I'm always amazed when, when believers want unbelievers to live like believers. It can't happen. Lord, I'm a follower of Christ, and I don't even live in every aspect of my life for all of my time as a believer to glorify you. And I know you. I have your word, and I have your spirit, and I still struggle at times. How in the world can I put the expectation of perfection on somebody that doesn't even know you? And so, Lord, I pray that as we live in this culture, as we live in this world, that we would see that there's something grander, something greater to come. And I pray that we would take that from this passage this morning, that we would have a hope that is something we can stand on. And we thank you for this, Lord. We pray that you'd open our hearts and minds. And I pray, Lord, above all things, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come to know you before it's everlasting too late. 
It's not about religion. It's not about going to church, baptism, or tithing. It's about knowing you, the person of Jesus Christ, receiving by faith through grace your gift of salvation for the forgiveness of sins. We all need it, Lord. And I pray that we would have all received it. Praying that prayer of confession and repentance, turning from our sin and turning to you. Thank you for your grace, which is unending, and the prayers that you're praying over us right now. Thank you for all of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Not really going to spend a lot of time there, but I have to point out the beautiful moment that takes place in verse 6 and 7. God's voice speaks from the cloud. God's, God's voice, the Father's voice, speaks down to disciples after Peter suggests idolatry. God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Verse 6, it says they were sore afraid, which if I heard the voice of God, I don't think I would use the word sore afraid. I would need a stronger word than sore or very. I would need something much stronger than that because I would be utterly terrified if I heard the voice of God in a sense of rebuke coming down to me in an audible sense. And this is why it's amazing when you read scripture, when people are before God, whether it's his voice, his presence, or his throne, there isn't this feeling of pride that wells up in humanity. It's a feeling of humility. It's a lowering. No one has ever stood before the throne of God. No human being has ever said, listen, let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. They're too busy with their face in the dirt saying, I'm a horrible sinner. I'm a horrible sinner. Please forgive me. And so here, these disciples do exactly what we would do. They fall on their face. And then verse 7, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I don't want to miss this. Verse 7 is so powerful for us. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. God says, This is my beloved Son, on whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. The very next thing he says is, Get up and don't be afraid. Peter just suggested idolatry in the presence of Christ. Let's build some tabernacles, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. We'll worship all you guys. And Jesus, in that moment when Peter deserved rebuke, by the way, as Peter often did, and before you think, yeah, that Peter, he was crazy, think about this, we need rebuke often. Jesus' words are words of grace and comfort. No, 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 arise. Be not afraid. Like there's more to this than you even understand. And I love that. I just can't read that passage without noting that moment. We also have to notice where in the text this powerful moment happens for the disciples. They were just told, if you read Matthew chapter 16, you're going to find out that they were just told by Christ uh, that he would need to go and go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the religious leaders. We see this in chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. So he's warning them that this is going to happen, that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, to which Peter response, or his response is a rebuke to the Lord, uh, telling him it's not going to happen. Also notice earlier in 16, Peter makes a great confession uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus tells him that he's going to have to go suffer some things as Christ, as Messiah. And then Peter, in his human wisdom, says, that can't be because I don't understand that. So no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And the language is not one of like gentle correction. It's rebuke. It's Peter saying, Lord, don't be silly now. That's not going to happen. 
that, that's not happening. And so after this, and then Jesus obviously corrects Peter, which again, if you're going to rebuke Jesus, be ready to be rebuked. Okay. And some of you say, well, I would never rebuke Jesus. I would never tell Jesus this or that can't happen. Please. That's our prayer life sometimes. For being honest for a moment, many of us in our prayer lives, we don't say it out loud because we know that's not very spiritual in church. And we say things like, oh no, Lord's will be done. But oftentimes we pray things to God that are basically telling God, no God, that can't be how this is going to work. God, you don't know what you're talking about. God, you don't understand. God, you don't know. Now I understand we vent to God in prayer at times and God receives that. But if you're going to open that dialogue (laughs) and you're going to tell God, no God, you don't get it. Beware that he may come back with, no, no, you don't get it. Here, now let me show you what you don't get. Let me walk you through this real quick. Let me get your mind in scripture and remind you of some things here. And so Peter's in this moment. So all of this has happened leading up to chapter 17. Peter's confession that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And Christ actually says that's the foundation of the church. Peter's not the foundation of the church. It's not a line of, Uh, of popes or leadership in the church that he was somehow suggesting as others have thought. He was saying, no, no, Peter, your confession is the foundation of the church that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus warns them of the suffering to come, the impending time of struggle that not only will affect Jesus, but also the disciples. Then Jesus tries, or Peter tries to correct Jesus. Jesus in turn rebukes Peter. And then it's in this moment, it's in this grander picture that Matthew 17 comes, that Jesus takes some of his disciples up into a mount and reveals something to them. I don't think anything Jesus did was by accident. I don't think this happened after Jesus warns them of his coming suffering and warns them of what's ahead. I don't think it's by accident that after that moment, he then says, but let me show you something. Let me show you something that's so much greater than you can even imagine. I know your hearts are heavy. Imagine as the disciples, you're hearing again, I have to go away to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer all these things at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to be persecuted. You're the disciples. Are you joyful over this? No, you're heartbroken. You're discouraged. You're, maybe you're full of doubt. Now, they shouldn't have been because Jesus has been laying the groundwork for this for some time. But they were the disciples. Like us, they don't always get things the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. The 10th time, right? So they're just like, what do you mean? I mean, Peter didn't get it to that point that he was trying to stop the cross. No, 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 no. And it's in this moment of discourage and confusion and doubt and questions that he encourages them with a bigger picture of eternity. Now I have to note before we jump back into the text, as we would do again, and I'm making a lot of comparisons between the disciples and us. I believe there's some to be made. As we would do, even after this moment, the disciples actually argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom. They actually argued with one another after this moment, who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So again, even to some degree, while they received this, I I think to some degree, they obviously missed it to some degree as well. Let's look back at the text. Matthew chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And understand Jesus on the mount. Jesus on the mount. Verse 2. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. 
We see here, obviously, he was transfigured. Transfigured. Now, maybe some of you have studied this out before. The original Greek word is actually transliterated for us into English. The Greek word is metamorpho, and we get the word in the English metamorphosis. And so this word from the Greek, we understand metamorphosis. We've heard this word before. Um, this is actually the only time recorded for us that Jesus revealed his glory in this way while on earth. So in the text, when it says transfigured, in the original Greek, that word, we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorpho. It's this idea of changing over. We're going to talk about it in a minute here. But this moment of changing, this transfiguring of Jesus, is the only time recorded for us that Jesus displayed his glory in this way while on earth. Interestingly enough, Luke's account of this experience does not use the word transfigured, but rather he uses the phrase fashion of his countenance, the fashion of his countenance. Now, I thought this was interesting just to point out uh, the phrase fashion of his countenance. This means his appearance or that which is seen. So that which is seen was changed. His very appearance was changed from what it was before. Uh, possibly the reason some have suggested is because Luke's audience is primarily a Gentile, non-Jewish audience, where Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. The reason that might be is the Greek word metamorpho could be connected with the metamorphosis or changing of heathen gods in the Gentile religions. That a heathen god would change form from one thing to the next. And so Luke, in writing to these Gentiles, not wanting to connect anything with Christ to these, this understanding of heathen gods, used a different phrase, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as to not confuse them, but to still show them and express what happened before them. I thought that was really cool that God gets that specific so that we have an understanding and he wants us to have a clear understanding of what's happening here. This is unlike any other thing, any religious document, anything has ever claimed that what Jesus did here before his disciples was unique. Literally, Jesus was transformed right before the eyes of the disciples. His actual form changed and revealed what was there all along as the son of God, God himself. Think about that. Some have suggested, well, this is where he became the Messiah or became deity. No, 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 no. All that that did was it revealed to the disciples who he really was under that flesh. He's always God. He always was God. He'll always be God. And he put on flesh, the Bible says, right? And why did he put on flesh? So that he could serve us, die for us, go to the cross. To live the life of a servant going all the way to the cross, Ephesians talks about. And so he did this. That he took on flesh. But in this intrusion of glory, he allowed the glory of God, his glory, to be displayed before the disciples. And again, not by accident, not by chance, but to show them something. To encourage them with something. I have to note the idea here of when, when Luke talks about the fashion of his countenance. One of the parts of that definition is the change that takes place right before the eyes. This idea of a changing or something that is seen. The definition also goes on to say that the change strikes the eye. I thought that was interesting. It strikes the eye. It's powerful enough of a difference. It catches your eye. You can't help but notice. You can't help but look at it. And so here, this transformation, this changing struck the eye of the disciples. 
They just couldn't look away. They were mesmerized by this moment. We've been going through on Wednesday nights uh, in our adult group. Uh, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, uh, some of the false teachings that arose during the time of the early church. That when we read about the early church and the late first century, second, third century, you read about all these great things that are happening. The church is growing. I mean, people are coming to Christ in droves. This is an amazing move of God. But along the same time, there were some individuals in the church and out of the church that began to suggest some very strange teachings in contradiction to the things of Scripture. And what we have found in just two weeks of looking at a handful of these is that the person of Christ, the nature of Christ, is the number one thing that's attacked among the early church false teachings. Those things, those heresies, the, the word is, those heresies that crept into the early church, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, either in part or in whole, attacked the very person of Christ. Was he really God and man? I don't understand how he could be fully God and fully man. Some said, no, he was all God, no to little man. Some said, no, he was all man, some to little God. And I'm amazed that the enemy doesn't necessarily go after some of the things about God or even the Holy Spirit, there's some of that. Not even the church, not even so much the Bible, per se, is a direct attack. But it's constantly the person of Christ that's being attacked. It's the teaching of his very nature, that he was both, yes, God and man. And the reason is, if he wasn't both God and man, fully God, fully man, he could not be, according to Scripture, the, the, the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And so if the enemy can undermine one or two aspects of the person of Christ, he is actually undermining the very mission and work of Christ as our Savior. And so here we see that the transfiguration doesn't make Jesus God. It just reveals that he already was and continues to be. Again, some have suggested that he was not man but merely God. Others, he was man and no God. The enemy wants us to doubt the truth of who Christ was on earth. But in this passage, we see both his humanity and his deity on display. Also, interesting enough, not only do we see a changing that takes place here, this actual change of form from what he was before to what he displayed in his glory, we also see the transfiguration was a fulfillment of Jesus' own words just before this takes place. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. So again, Matthew 16 ends with these words, and then Matthew 17 opens up with Jesus inviting some of his disciples to experience this moment. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we think coming in his kingdom, oh, that's future events. That's so far down the road. But what does Jesus actually say? Jesus told some of his disciples that some of them would see him coming in his kingdom before they tasted death. So he's saying, in your life, before you die, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Shortly after that statement of Christ, we read the disciples' experience on the mount where Jesus, I believe, gave them a sneak peek into the kingdom of God that the disciples through Christ would one day experience. Think about it again. What's happening around this text? Tons of discouragement, confusion, doubt. What do you mean you're going to go away? What do you mean you're going to be persecuted? I don't understand. And Jesus says, listen, some of you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom before you taste death. And he gave them a gracious opportunity to see a sneak peek of what not only is for the kingdom of God, but what would be for them one day as followers of Christ. 
that they can step back and see, man, there's so much more than what I ever imagined. What's interesting about this is Peter actually records some of this for us. Go to Second Peter, way back in the New Testament here. Put a marker there in Matthew 17. If you have little children, it's probably a crayon or a G.I. Joe guy or something like that. If it was in your pocket, a Lego. There have been times I've showed up to church with Legos in my pocket, mostly because I confiscated them from my kids coming in the building. So whatever it is, put something there in Matthew 17. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Apparently, no one else has ever confiscated Legos from their children. That's cool. Um, They were littler when this happened, but it was like, no, you're not going to take that in junior church with you because I don't want to hear it from the teachers. And this was before my wife was teaching that class. So 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. It says here, Peter speaking, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, what's it say? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at verse 17. For we received from God the Father, or for he received, sorry, from God the Father, honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mounts. You know what Peter's saying here? And if you read on from there, something that's interesting is Peter gives us an experience, an eyewitness account. He says, I saw it because I was there. I heard the voice. I saw it. But he actually goes on to say, we have a more sure word of prophecy, and it's the word of God. He says, greater than my experience... Although it's real and valid and recorded for us in Scripture, greater than just my experience, man, we have this word that is a revelation from God that is trustworthy. A scary thought as a pastor is we live in a day and age where experience is being put on the same plane as authority of Scripture. Where someone can say, oh, no, no, God spoke to me and told me blah, blah, blah. I don't know why I went all Dracula there, blah, 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 okay? Hotel Transylvania, if you haven't seen it, it's pretty funny. Anyway, it's like 17 of them now. I don't know. I think there's three. I don't know. But people will say this. Oh, no, no, no. No, brother. And some of these people have YouTube channels and Facebook pages, and they're all over the place. And they'll say, oh, no, no, but you don't understand. God spoke to me. Well, amen. Praise God. Can you show me where it's affirmed in Scripture? I'm telling you now, most of it is... If I'm being fair, it's not serious things. It's not hardcore things. It's not major doctrinal shifts. But if we go down that road too far and we don't keep this the sure word of our foundation, pretty soon we start drifting into these different thinkings on different things because pastor so-and-so, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so said this or that. And next thing you know, we're not even going to this anymore. We just go to their page and ask, well, tell me what God gave you. What, what, and here it is. Here's one of those catchphrases. Give me the word that God gave you. It's okay. You don't need their word. We have the word. And you, here's the cool thing. You don't got to log into YouTube or Facebook. You can just get into his word and you can read it anytime you want. Now, does God speak to us through his word? Absolutely. I believe that. But I'm just telling you, there's a lot of, there's a shift. And I, to me, it feels like the last 20 years have been different than before, but I've only been saved for so long so, since I was 16. So I don't know, maybe this has always been But it feels like in the last so many years, there's this shift away from, for God's word says, to, but God said to me. But God spoke to me. 
But God showed me. And Peter's saying, if somebody could have claimed that, by the way, it's Peter. He says, listen, we saw it and it was real and it's true that it happened. But what does he say? The very next thing. And this is, this is all free. It ain't even in the notes. It says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. We have a more sure word. Not, he's not saying what I saw wasn't true. He's saying that's just my experience, but there's something even more. And here's this word again, surer. You guys are going to be saying this at lunch today. Surer word of prophecy. There's a more true sense of the foundation of what we're standing on. And it's the word of God, along with things that God will reveal to us in this life and through his word. And so it's a powerful thing to have the word of God. But let's, let's go back to the point of going to Second Peter, which was to see his account of this Mount of Transfiguration. Interestingly enough, three of the four gospels record the transfiguration of Jesus for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, none of them experienced it in person. None of them that record it for us actually were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was there. And I love that in verse 15, Peter uses, if you look at it with me, we start in verse 16. Look what he says in verse 15. Moreover, I endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in Remembrance, And he's talking about putting off this tabernacle. What's the tabernacle that he's referring to? His body. So I'm going to put off this body, but at my decease, I want you to keep these things in remembrance. And he challenges them. He reminds them of the glory that was revealed in Christ, the majesty that was on display at the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he encourages them with scripture and says, this is the true word. But I want to focus on that word decease for a second. The word decease is actually the word exodus. It's the word exodus. And what was Peter saying here? Peter understood because of what Christ showed him that this life is temporary. And when we leave this world, it's not a defeat. It's merely an exodus to the next life or really our true home. Peter understood what Jesus told him in Matthew 16 and what Peter saw in Matthew 17. See, we pick on Peter, but here we see that he saw In Matthew 17, the very glory of God. Matthew 16, he hears the truth of what's coming and that it has to happen. But in 2 Peter, he records for us, but I finally get it. I mean, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but I can see him saying, I finally get it. When I, when I take my exodus from this body, it's not, that's all there is. There's so much more because I saw what awaits us in the kingdom of God. So what's the moving on? Not only do we see Jesus on the Mount, we also see this idea of him being transformed, but we also see the significance of Moses and Elijah. The significance of Moses and Elijah. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 17, if you want to go back there, we read it already a couple times, we'll read it again. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, or Elijah, talking with him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why Moses... And Elijah, of all the saints that went before, of all the followers of God, of all those that did great things for God, why not Adam? Why not Abraham? I mean, both had massively significant impacts on the Old Testament and on the followers of God. After all, Jesus is considered the second Adam because he, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we read about that Adam brought through his sin death 
and sin, but Jesus brings forgiveness and restoration and righteousness. Also, we see with Abraham that Abraham was the one promised that his seed would be a blessing to all nations and that seed, that child to come, would be Christ. The line is preserved from Abraham to Jesus. Matthew does a great job in his first chapter exploring that for us. And so, so why not Adam? Why not Abraham? Why not David? I mean, the king whose throne Jesus is symbolically taking over in line of and all of those things, the root of Jesse and all these things. Why not David? Why not Adam? Why not Abraham? I, I believe that these two were chosen to appear with Christ to represent the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when you think about Moses, we think of the law and we think about Elijah, we think of the prophets. And often Jesus would summarize the Old Testament in that way, the law and the prophets, law and the prophets. In fact, he even was asked, what is the greatest law? What is the greatest commandment? And he summarizes all of it by saying what? Love the Lord your God with more or less all of you and love your neighbor as yourself. Summarized all of it with two simple commandments. So why Moses and Elijah in this moment? Because I believe it's showing that Christ has both fulfilled the law in every way and the prophecies of the Messiah that was to come have been fulfilled in Christ as well. In essence, Christ was showing that the old covenant was satisfied and a new covenant was about to begin. A key lesson that even Peter needed to be reminded of in Acts chapter 10 with the whole thing dealing with Cornelius. And so Jesus is displaying in this moment not only the glory of God, not only this beautiful kingdom to come, but he's also saying, listen, there's this covenant that's coming and I'm fulfilling one and beginning anew. And it's amazing to see that this was all again by design. So how is Jesus described? We see the things that are happening with Jesus on the mount. I want to look just briefly at the descriptions of Christ. There's two descriptions that are given to us. In Matthew's account, it's worded a little different in the other accounts. And so we'll read Matthew's account. Uh, but basically, it's the same two descriptions. Matthew 17 and verse 2. And was transfigured or, or changed before them. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. So two things, two descriptions given of Christ. His face was shining and his garments shined or began to shine. Uh, the, when his face began to shine, it says it was like the sun. Uh, they could barely look at him. It was so bright. That's why I ask the question. When you were a kid, did you ever try to sit and look at the sun? On those hot summer days when the sun's right above you, you're laying on the grass trying to talk about the clouds. We talked about this before. People had these crazy ideas. Oh, that one looks like a bunny. That's a cat. It's a cloud. Okay, it doesn't look like anything. You're crazy. But when you would do this with your friends and you would try to look right at the sun, how long could you look at the sun before afraid to look away and close your eyes? Not very long, right? You had to look away. You ever look at the sun so long that when you looked away, you could still see it in your mind's eye? You could still see it even though you couldn't really see it because it made an imprint, an impression on you? See, I believe the disciples, when they're looking at the face of Christ, which, by the way, they knew it very well, as it began to shine as bright as the sun, I wonder how long could they look before they had to look away? And when they looked away, could they see, still see the very glory impressed on his face? Maybe when Peter was writing those words in Second Peter, he was thinking back and remembering what it looked like. I don't think I would ever forget something like that. We must note that the light shone from not as a reflection, but shone from within. The light that they were seeing was not shining upon him and reflecting off of him. It was shining out of him. 
It was shining from within him. When Moses' face shined in the Old Testament, it was not shining out of him. It was a reflection of the light of God's glory. In this case, it is not a reflection. It is all his glory that is being displayed. And I don't know what that does for you. I don't know what that does for you in your prayer life. I don't know what that does for you in your personal life. But all I can tell you is when I think about the very glory that was being displayed, and I don't even know if this is, and I kind of believe it wasn't the full glory of God on display. God says in the Old Testament, you can't even look upon that and live. So obviously I don't believe it was that degree, but it was still the glory of God. And that changes how I want to worship him. And that makes me want to just sing a little louder the next time we do a worship song. It makes me want to pray just a little longer. It makes me want to believe just a little more. It makes me want to get in his word and say, man, I just want to know this God. And if you're struggling with apathy, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. It's because you've started thinking something wrong of God and who God really is. And you think he's the little God that you've made him or you've created him to be or whatever is going on. And you've minimized him down. And you've taken him out of his glory and off his throne. And then we read these words and I pray that it puts him right back up there. I pray that in our minds and in our lives we realize he is worthy of everything we can give. And there is nothing he asks of us that he does not deserve because he deserves more than we can even give. And we see it on display here. Again, it was not shining upon him. It was shining from within him. In Acts chapter 9, we read of the conversion of Saul, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the missionary for Christ. Acts 9 tells us that a light from heaven shined around him. And in response to this massively bright light, it says he fell to the ground. I believe, and next thing you know, we hear Christ begins to speak. I believe the light was the glory of God again on display. In Matthew 17, we read that Christ's person shined with glory. Then a bright cloud overshadowed them. In response to the light of his glory and the voice of God, they fell to the ground. This is the reaction that Saul has to the light of God's glory and the voice. His glory is overwhelming and unexplainable. So I wonder how many of us, when we go to our prayer lives, we go to our Bible study time, do we actually fall before him in this sense? Like, do we see him as this God? Do we fall before him and say, no, I need to humble myself before you because you are so much greater than I'll ever be. And not in a sense of don't consume me with your anger, but more thank you for calling me your beloved and showing me your grace and forgiveness that I can know you and I worship you and I exalt you as my savior. You see, his face began to shine, but also his garments became white as light became white as the light. His whole being radiated with his glory. And in Mark's account of the Mount of Transfiguration, you can take notes if you're jotting this down, Mark chapter 9, verse 3, we get a detailed description of the level of whiteness of his garment. So Mark chapter 9, verse 3. I'm just going to read it. I think it's just amazing how Mark gives us another detail to this moment. Mark chapter 9 and verse 3. And his raiment began became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now in the King James, we read the phrase or the word fuller. No fuller could whiten them. Some of you, if you have a modern translation, it may say launderer 
or a professional laundry a person that does professional laundry. Uh, that's what a fuller is. A fuller is a professional launderer. Somebody that's job it is to make clothes bright and white and colorful. That's their whole job. And Mark is saying here in Mark 9, 3, the garment that Jesus was wearing became so bright and so white, so pure white in the light that no, not even a professional launderer could match that level of brightness. It couldn't be done. We've all heard commercials for soaps and for bleach products that can get your whites white and keep them white or your colors vibrant, right? OxyClean has made a ton of money selling us on the fact that if you take a little scoop of their stuff and put it in your laundry soap, your clothes are magically going to look brand new, okay? Some of your clothes will never be clean again. Just be real with it. Some of the guys in here have t-shirts from 1996. You need to just throw that thing away, okay? OxyClean can't even help you with that. But some of us, we hear these commercials, these advertisements, right? Get it clean. Get it. It's going to be brighter than bright. It's going to be whiter than white. Your colors will never look so bright. Mark is saying, listen, nothing on earth could create a garment as white and as clean and as pure, as bright as the garment that Jesus was wearing in this moment. And I just love the detail that Mark gives. I love that he doesn't just say, hey, it was really bright. That's why God, well, there's many reasons why God doesn't have me write scripture. Number one, because the canon's closed. There is no new revelation. But also because I would, my book would be like four pages. God is good. We're all sinners. Actually, it'd probably be like, we suck. He's awesome. Uh, he loves you. Accept him. I mean, it'd be really simple statements. He'd read and go, uh, I can't use that. That's not good enough, right? But Mark goes, no, listen, it's, you need to understand. Now, many people believe that Mark wrote with the influence of Peter. And also he ministered with Paul. So there's an influence there. And so he's maybe even hearing from Peter firsthand the account of what was happening here. And again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he writes, man, it was so bright. It was so bright, you can't even compare it. When I read this, it brings to mind a powerful verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Again, jot it down for notes sake. If you'd like to read it, I'm just going to read it for us. In reference to the person of Christ, it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Who being the brightness of his glory. See, again, I'm just, I love how the word of God kind of weaves this together for us, that Jesus Christ was the very brightness of the glory of God. And Jesus was the expressed image of his person. When the disciples saw the brightness of his glory, they were seeing the very glory of God. I want to wrap it up with an encouragement. And I pray that it is encouragement. As I said at the beginning, we live in a culture that can get us distracted, discouraged, confused, take questions. God, why this? Why that? Why that? And I kind of mentioned that maybe the disciples were there too when they heard news they didn't understand. So Jesus reveals to them this beautiful moment of showing him his glory, but also a sneak sneak peek into the kingdom to come. And I pray that that's what we take away from this this morning. One day we will leave this world and join our Savior in heaven. One day we will leave this world and join him in his heaven. And in that moment, we will be transformed. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we will be, but we know that when he shall appear, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Jesus was given a glimpse to the disciples and to us that one day our very form will change 
And we will be glorified as he is glorified. We will not be like him in deity in the sense that he is God and we never will be. But he is God and the fact that he is God, we will not be the same level as God. But we will be like him in that we will shine with the glory of God. I know it's hard living in the world today at times. I know there's a lot of things that discourage us and distract us and get us confused. But our minds cannot be fixed only on the below. We have to be fixed on the above. And we have to know that one day there is coming a day when I will leave this tabernacle and I will be like him and I will be before him. And so what do we do, brothers and sisters? We live every day by the grace of God to endeavor to do what God has called us to do for his glory. We endure suffering and trials. Paul says to Timothy, as a good soldier, we endure and we keep our minds fixed on the things to come, not on the things we see below. And I know it's hard. But that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of prayer. That's the beauty of his word. See, we come together as body of Christ to be encouraged and strengthened. We pray for one another so that God would strengthen us when we're not together. We serve one another to love one another. We get in his word. We get encouraged by example after example after example of how God has endured others. Philippians 1.6 is one of my favorite verses. Philippians is one of my favorite New Testament books. But verse 6 of chapter 1 is so powerful. Because it reminds us that he has begun a good work in you. And he will complete that work. He will not let you go. He has not given up on you. We may have given up on him. We may have gotten distracted and discouraged. But he says, I'm not quitting on you. You're mine and I'm yours and I'm holding on to you. And I will see you through. And one day you'll be like me and you'll be with me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know we went through a lot of information this morning. But I pray more than information. It's more than just knowledge, as we said at the beginning. It's something that would be deeper than that. Lord, I know that I can forget who you are. I know who you are in the sense of your, your God. I know you're my Savior through Christ. And I know that you are good and loving and kind and all those things. But sometimes in my worship, sometimes in my praise, I get focus more on me than on you. And I have lots of ideas, lots of suggestions on how it should be. (laughs) I probably would do exactly what Peter did. Make a suggestion, some way I think that's right to worship you and honor you. But I pray, Lord, that I would just look into the face of glory through prayer and through your word. And I would just lift you up. That I'd make it more about you than about me. And so, Father, I I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this week in your word and how you've encouraged my heart and mind. And I pray that you've done that for those here today. Thank you for revealing the sneak peek into heaven, into the coming kingdom. You didn't have to. You did it to display your deity, your glory. But you also did it to encourage your believers, your disciples. And so, Father, in all these things, we ask that you'd be glorified. Be with the one here today that needs to maybe surrender to you and say they're at a point of confusion and, and they're just feeling a little shaken. Maybe they would just ground themselves again in the reality that what we see isn't all there is. There's so much more to come. For the one that doesn't know Christ, I pray they come to know Christ, believing on your death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for their sin. No matter what their sin, they can know you and be forgiven. For the believer, I pray that we would just remind ourselves of who you show yourself to be in Scripture, that we worship you effectively in reaction to what you've revealed. 
Father, we ask that all of this would again glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.